Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Joining me today is Laura O'Dell, a member of the research team here at Diamond Hill, and she focuses on life science tools and diagnostics, drug distributors, labs, healthcare, IT, and hospital suppliers. Laura serves as a sleeve manager in our research opportunities strategy and has been with Diamond Hill since 2015. Prior to joining Diamond Hill, Laura worked at Manning and Napier as a research analyst and worked in the pharmaceutical industry at both Aventis and Procter & Gamble. Today we're going to be discussing genomics, uh, an area that I know absolutely nothing about, uh, but I've been able to prep myself reading Laura's genomics primer, and hopefully we'll have some good questions for her as we'll discuss the industry, its outlook, and the benefits to society from an overall standpoint. Thank you and enjoy. So Laura, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate you coming in. Uh, let's cut right to the chase. Genomics, what is it and how did it start? So genomics is the study of all of the genes in the cells of our bodies. So you're probably wondering, why not just call it genetics? Why do <laughs> right. we use the word genomics? Uh, well, genetics is more focused and refers specifically to the study of individual genes rather than how all of those genes work together in the body. So you can see that studying this broader, more encompassing field of genomics is really what we need to understand diseases so that we can actually improve medical outcomes. So how did genomics begin? Mm -hmm. Well, we've known about the structure of DNA since the 1950s, but the modern study of genomics didn't really start until the mid-1980s, and that's when scientists developed a way of multiplying and identifying specific DNA sequences in a reproducible manner. Since then, the science has continued to advance, and in 2003, the first human genome was sequenced. That cost $3 billion and took 13 years to complete. So if we compare that to today, we can now sequence a whole genome for less than $1,000, and it can be done in a day or so. So that's tremendous progress. Wow, yeah, definitely. Uh, so how have advancements over the last several years led to, to that rapid progress that you were talking about, going from you know, 13 years and $3 billion to now, you know, whatever it was, $1,000 in a day or so. So how do we get from point A to point B so quickly? So today's sequencing equipment is tremendously efficient. Every few years, the main competitor in the space, Illumina, will put out their next generation of equipment. And each time a new instrument comes out, there's an efficiency leap. And each time there's an efficiency leap, there's a subsequent drop in sequencing cost. So if we look back over the industry over the past 20 years or so, it's clear that sequencing has progressed at a rate faster than Moore's Law. And as a reminder, Moore's Law is usually quoted in relation to semiconductors and is the doubling of capacity or the halving of cost every two years. And sequencing has exceeded Moore's Law, and for the foreseeable future, I think it will continue. Case in point, Illumina expects to be able to offer a $100 genome with their current equipment, so somewhere in the next couple years. And historically, when Illumina has reduced the sequencing cost, there's been a subsequent increase in volumes. And I think this brings up a good point, that the key to understanding how to invest in genomics is recognizing that total growth will be a reflection of both the downward pressure on pricing that will then be more than offset by the increase in volumes. And it's important to note that 
you are not a scientist and that you're looking at it from a business standpoint. And that's how we view this discussion. We'll talk about it later on about different companies. I am a scientist, or I was a scientist. Oh, you were? <laughs> I'm not sure if it still counts, but I did, <laughs> I did do my training in science. But I am looking at this from a business perspective. Uh, but the science, understanding the science perspective helps to understand where the different technologies differ and maybe which ones are going to end up being the best ones. You referenced the challenges associated with regulation. Specifically, the FDA has struggled to create a comprehensive regulatory framework for genetic testing. Other concerns include the complexity of the overall issue uh, and making sure patients understand the information that they are given uh, before they take what could be considered medically unwise actions. Uh, Are there steps being taken to create some kind of industry standard? So everybody is involved with this. The FDA, the companies in the space, and even doctors all want a clear standard. But to date, it's just been too complex to come up with a single solution that works for everyone. Instead, the FDA is looking at genetic tests on a case-by-case basis and applying some general rules across the board. So first, the FDA requires that companies are able to show clear cause and effect data that demonstrates that we fully understand how a set of genes controls a given disease. And as you mentioned, the FDA doesn't want companies giving patients information that causes patients to do something medically unwise. For example, the FDA does not want patients to stop taking a drug or change their dosing because they get a pharmacogenomics test that causes them to question how they metabolize a particular drug. And finally, the FDA thinks that patients should only have access to data where there's some action that they can take to change the outcome of the disease. So a test that's likely to get approval from the FDA is one where the genetics are clearly understood and actionable and where the result is clearly communicated to the patient. So currently, the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics has published a database of only 59 genes that meet these requirements, but the list is continually being updated with new genes. Maybe spend some time explaining the differences between the the whole genome sequencing, or WGS, and the more common genetic testing done today, which focuses on a specific, smaller section of genes. So in reality, when you compare the genome of one person to another, you'll find that most of it is basically the same. But there are small sections that are different, and those are what cause the differences between us. So historically, it's been a lot cheaper to just test the small sections of the genome, rather than sequencing the whole genome. Today, it may cost, let's say, $200 to zoom in and look at a certain disease-causing gene, and that's the cheapest way to do it. But as I mentioned earlier, Illumina is working towards making whole genome sequencing possible for $100. In that case, why not just run the whole genome and see what else you can find? It would make sense financially, and that information could be used later as we start to understand more genes. In one of your case studies, you referenced the analysis of the breast cancer gene, or BRCA, and its effect on breast cancer incidents. Myriad Genetics was a pioneer behind the commercialization of this test, and it serves as the first example of a genetic test resulting in commercial success. The benefit to society is obvious, uh, but how did it help Myriad from a financial standpoint? Yeah, so Myriad was an innovator in the genetic testing market and did a remarkable job building the BRCA testing market from the ground up. First, they patented the genes, then they got FDA approval for the test, and finally they obtained reimbursement from payers. They spent a decade marketing their test until it became standard of care. 
And then at its peak in 2014, Myriad was an extremely profitable company with a gross margin in the upper 80s and an operating margin approaching 40%. Today, however, it's hard to find similar companies that are that profitable because the rules of the game have changed. In 2014, there was a Supreme Court ruling that now means that genes can no longer be patented. That plus the decline in sequencing costs means that there's a lot of competition for today's genetic testing companies. So following up with the industry being more competitive, what's a more typical example of what we see in today's genetic testing companies? NIPT is a good example of what happens in today's more competitive world. In case you haven't heard of this type of testing before, NIPT stands for non-invasive prenatal testing. This is a blood test that a pregnant woman gets to test for genetic abnormalities in her baby, specifically Down syndrome. NIPT first entered the clinic in 2011, and in the very near future, just about every expectant mom in the developed world will have NIPT. So why did this genetic test see such rapid uptake? The main reason is that NIPT replaces amniocentesis, which we know is potentially dangerous to the fetus. And also, I mentioned before that communication can be a challenge, but in this case, the communication and medical protocols were already in place from amniocentesis. Initially, NIPT was reserved for high-risk pregnancies only and was also expensive. But today, the cost of the test has come down enough that many insurance companies are paying for all pregnancies. So from a volumes and a penetration point of view, we can consider NIPT to be a very successful genetic test. But compared to Myriad and BRCA testing before 2014, there are many more competitors, so it's a lot less profitable. Natera is a leader in NIPT, but still hasn't reached profitability. This is due in part to investments to grow the business and develop new tests, but even looking at the gross margin, we can see that Natera earns about 40%, which is half of what Myriad achieved at its peak. Oncotype DX is a genetic test that can be used to determine the chance of recurrence of breast cancer. This sounds like the perfect example of the benefits of genetic testing not being used in the most effective manner. Can you explain the conundrum that this test is created not only for patients and doctors, but for the company that provides the test? Sure. So like you mentioned, Oncotype DX is a test that's used to determine the likelihood of the recurrence of breast cancer. The test has 10 years worth of clinical data showing that it works, it's reimbursed, and holds a high market share. So sounds like an ideal test, right? Mm -hmm. The problem has been that when patients have cancer, they're usually worried and often just want to do everything they can to get rid of cancer. So in a lot of cases, the test indicates that the patient does not need chemo, but some patients may still want to do chemo anyway to make sure they've covered all their bases. For the average consumer, the most accessible benefit of genetic testing are products like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and others that were originally sold as a way to better understand your heritage. Now we're starting to see additional information as testing develops that can flag pre-existing conditions or potential health risks. Do you see this segment of the industry continuing to expand, or will there be limits placed on this type of information? I see these two companies and their lesser-known competitors continuing to expand, but within the framework of what the FDA will allow them to do. Both of these companies contract their testing to the large labs like Quest and LabCorp, since the labs already have well-established, validated, and high-efficiency testing in place. And now that 23andMe and Ancestry have been around for so long, they've been able to collect a lot of genetic samples. 23andMe is sitting on a database of about 10 million samples, and Ancestry has about 15 million samples. 
and they can look at these samples to get additional genomic data. For example, just recently Ancestry announced that they are going to be adding health data to their testing next year. So as the understanding of genomics increases and these companies are able to further mine their databases, they'll be able to offer more analysis every year for a lower cost. Wow. So we'll know everything about each other, and they already know everything about us. Yeah, they already much. know. That's kind of scary. Um, we've talked about some of the current companies uh, and some of the uses for genomics. Where do you see this industry going, and what opportunities may arise for investors? I think we are at the tipping point where genomics becomes truly ubiquitous in clinical practice and leaves behind more of its academic roots. Huge population studies are underway that will link genes with diseases or disorders. Devices have become faster and easier to use. Diagnostic capabilities have been validated and many more of these genetic tests will launch in the coming years. All of this data will also enable more targeted therapies to be developed such as gene therapy. We're truly entering a new era in medicine. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons for these podcasts is so people get to know our, our teams better. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned that I stumbled on uh, was that you were a scientist. So yes. maybe talk, if you would, and just, just to wrap up, talk a little bit about you know how you got from being a scientist to where now you're analyzing companies. Uh, so I, I started off in science because it was what interested me the most. Um, I loved, you know, looking at you know, kind of thinking about medicine and diseases and drugs and all of that and ended up doing a bachelor's in biochemistry and uh, worked in a pharmaceutical lab for several years. Um, and although I liked working in the lab, the work was pretty repetitive. And so I decided to um, uh, pursue an MBA to learn more about the management. And I, I intended to stay in pharmaceuticals after I graduated. Uh, but uh, when I was in my MBA is when I took my first finance class and discovered that a lot of the same uh, research principles that apply in science, you can move them right over to researching stocks. And uh, I loved it, and, and that was kind of how I got my entry into finance. Well, great. So that background is very helpful. Uh, but, Laura, I want to thank you for joining me today. Hopefully it wasn't too painful, uh, and, the, and the listeners enjoyed it, and hopefully you'll come on again sometime. Oh, thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.